Good morning, church. Let me try that again. Good morning, church. Not because of you, but because of me. As you can see, I am battling a little bit with a runny nose. Been sick for about a week and a half, but praise the Lord, I'm here by His grace. And just keep praying for me that my voice will hold up. In Psalm 36, I believe it was, we read about. God's desire to abundantly satisfy us. Last night we began our seminar by recognizing God's love for us. God loves us. He wants us. Isn't it a comfort to know that, that he wants us? God wants us. And not only does he want us, not only does he love us, but he wants to satisfy us. He wants to satisfy us abundantly. It says right here. They shall be, verse 8 of Psalm 36, abundantly satisfied with the fatness of thy house. Don't believe the lie that Satan is trying to tell you that the things of this world, the pleasure of sin is more satisfying than what God has for you. It's not. God wants to abundantly satisfy you, abundantly satisfy you. He has much more to satisfy you than the devil has to offer. So are you satisfied? Are you satisfied? Well, Nebuchadnezzar wasn't satisfied. Daniel chapter 2 is where we left off last night. Nebuchadnezzar was not satisfied, was he? No. He was excited. He was, he was pleased. He had had this terrible nightmare of a dream. Couldn't remember what it was, but he knew it was significant. And this dream troubled him so much and caused him so much anxiety that he put out a decree that if his wise men couldn't figure it out, they were all going to die. That's how intense this dream was. But Daniel was able to give him not only the dream, but its interpretation. And he was excited about that. In fact, Nebuchadnezzar, after attending that Daniel seminar and sitting on the front row there, decided that he was going to join with Daniel's church. He was praising the Lord. That's exactly what he was doing. He was praising the Lord like many of us have done. I myself came into this church through Bible studies in a Daniel seminar. He was praising God. How long did this experience last? Well, till Daniel chapter three. (laughs) Sanctified life says a few years, a few years. How long? Has our Daniel seminar and our Revelation seminars and evangelistic crusades that bring people in, how long have they lasted in the lives of individuals? Well, I would dare say that if they lasted longer, all of the pews, all of the seats in this church would be full this morning to overflowing. The book of Daniel is not primarily instructing us in prophecy. The book of Daniel is not primarily instructing us in prophecy. Its primary purpose is to teach us about the Christian experience and point us to Jesus Christ. 
That's the primary purpose of the book of Daniel. It's the primary purpose of prophecy. And what we're finding in the context of Daniel 2, the most important lesson that we can understand this morning, right now, in Daniel 2, is not that there are four kingdoms that are going to end with the second coming of Jesus Christ. That is all very significant. But the most important lesson is to recognize that that knowledge is not good enough. We cannot be satisfied. We cannot rest satisfied simply with an intellectual knowledge of the truth. We cannot stop simply understanding the 28 fundamental beliefs. It is not enough for us to go to church on the right day and follow all of the truth that God has given us. We must see Jesus. We must connect with Christ. We must know him as our savior. We must understand the gospel, the good news that Jesus loves us, that God loves us, that he wants us to be in heaven, that he wants to abundantly satisfy us as nothing else in this world can. This is what Nebuchadnezzar needed to know. Nebuchadnezzar was not abundantly satisfied. He was empty. And so it says here in chapter 3, verse 1, Nebuchadnezzar, the king, made an image of gold. <laughs> I mean, isn't that what you're going to do when you're not satisfied? You're going you're to get images and you're going to get idols and you're going to go out there in the world and develop careers and, and get into hobbies and you're going to be saturate yourself with something. You're looking to be satisfied. Nebuchadnezzar was not satisfied. And so he made an image of gold. Now, why did he make the image all of gold? God had already shown him an image that was partly of gold, but the gold stopped where? At the neck, right there. And then it went on to be silver and brass and iron and iron and clay. But Nebuchadnezzar, even though he understood all that truth, God-given truth that he acknowledged with all his heart, your God is the God of gods, Daniel, he went ahead anyway. And turned from that light, that truth, and made an image all of gold. Why did he do that? Well, I think primarily, one of the main reasons why Nebuchadnezzar did this is a, is a reason we all share together. Is because he knew that his kingdom, in that image God showed him, was the head of gold. He knew that his kingdom was the golden kingdom, and he didn't want his kingdom to end. You know, the Bible says that God has put eternity in our hearts. It's not our fault that we want to live forever. <laughs> That's the way God made us. He made us to live forever. He made us to live for eternity. It's built into the psyche. And you can see it all around us. You can see it in all the different religions. Everyone wants to continue on. Even people that deny they want to continue on, visit them on their deathbed. If they're not drugged out in some hospital, if they're not out of their mind with Alzheimer's or whatever, they will clearly, you'll see it in their eyes, they don't want to die. Death is the enemy. It is an enemy. Nebuchadnezzar built this image because he was scared. He was afraid of the future. That, by the way, is why he's so anxious about that dream that he couldn't remember because he knew it had something to do with the future. But he couldn't remember what it was. We're all afraid. We might put no fear on our hats and on our bumpers, but we are scared. I know I was. When I was out there in the world, you know, I was in the martial arts and I was a tough guy and nobody messed with me. But inside, I was scared. 
I was scared. And I remember when I first gave my heart to the Lord, I wasn't an Adventist yet. I was going to Calvary Chapel and I was going to a Pentecostal church. And I remember reading this verse in the Bible, Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14. It says right here, Hebrews 2, 14, For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he, Jesus, also himself likewise took part of the same, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver them, us, who through fear of death, that's all of us, through fear of death, were all their lifetime subject to bondage. And I read those verses and I said, yes, I've been delivered from the fear of death by Jesus. He's my savior and he's delivered me from the fear of death. And all of my life I've been subject to this bondage because of this fear. And I no longer have to be subject to it. I no longer have to worry. I no longer have to be concerned about the things of this world because God has rescued me. And I could look back on my life and I could see all of the times that God had preserved my life to this one point to bring me to the place where I no longer had to worry now about preserving my life. Because this life has met its purpose. It has connected with its creator and now it doesn't matter anymore. Eternity stretches out before me and that's all that's really significant. And now to live or to die is simply to serve God. That's what it's all about. There's nothing else I need to be concerned about. And if we haven't settled that yet in our hearts, we're still, there's still a fear. There's still an anxiety. There's still an uncertainty there. I remember in, 19, in 2003 when I was diagnosed with cancer, thyroid cancer, and came face to face again with death. God knew I needed that experience. And as I came face to face with death and worked through the agony, the idea of dying of cancer, I realized, so be it. And the peace of God came into my heart. It was now up to him. And he decided, well, James, <laughs> I could use you a few more years. If that's all right, that's all right with me to live or to die. I don't know if I want to be, you know, home with the Lord. Next thing you know, when you die. After sleeping that sleep of death is Jesus' second coming. Amen. Amen. Or here. You know, it's, it's, I'm, I'm torn between the two, Paul would say. Once we have met our Creator, our Savior, then our purpose in this life is fulfilled. Unless, of course, He would like to use us as His ambassadors to reach others who through all their lifetime are subject to death, to fear, to bondage. And be instruments to free them. And that's exactly what Daniel, chapter 2, chapter 3, and onward, is doing. Daniel and his, and his fellow companions have met Christ. They've been introduced to the Savior. They have a relationship with God. And now God is using them as ambassadors to reach out to others who are scared to death. And to show them that they don't need to be afraid of anything. How is God going to do that? Well, Nebuchadnezzar makes this image all of gold. Because he's scared. We don't think he's scared, but he is. The Bible says he's scared. And he sets it up in the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. And Nebuchadnezzar, the king, verse 2, gathers together all the princes and the governors and the captains and the judges and the treasurers and the counselors and the sheriffs and the rulers of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image. Nebuchadnezzar shipped Daniel off somewhere else, conveniently, 
and then gather together everyone else, including Daniel's three friends. Verse 3, and the princes and the governors and the captains, judges, treasurers, councils, sheriffs, and all the rulers of the province were gathered together in the dedication of the image that Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. And they stood before the image Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And a herald cried aloud to you and he said, it's commanded, O peoples and nations and languages, that when you hear the sound of the cornet and the flute and the harp and the sackbut and the psalmistry and the dulcimer and all kinds of music, I want you to worship the image. It's music, you know. That makes us do things that we wouldn't normally do. Music is so powerful and so influential that it is utilized for good or for bad to influence the minds and hearts of people all over the world. Music. Music. And so Nebuchadnezzar was using the power and the influence of music so that all the people would worship this image. Somehow he figured, if I can get everyone to worship this image, if I can get everyone focused in acknowledging this image, perhaps in this way, I can be certain of some kind of immortality, some kind of future. And those that don't worship, they don't fall down and worship, verse 6, that same hour they will be cast into the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. Therefore, when all the people heard the music... What do you think they did? They worshiped the image, didn't they? Yes. Why did all the people worship the image when they heard the music? Because they were scared. Because they were afraid. Why did Nebuchadnezzar make the image? Because he was afraid. Why did the people worship the image? Because they were afraid. What has the gospel done? It has freed us from fear. Are you afraid? I'm afraid. I'm, I'm anxious. I'm anxious for my kids. I want them to be saved. I want them to know Jesus as their Savior. I'm anxious about the future, about what's going to happen in this world. What is going on? I get a little bit nervous every time I get on an airplane. I've flown a lot of miles in my lifetime. I'm over 500,000, over a half a million miles, and I still get a little nervous. Naturally. We are afraid. And we can say, well, you know, you're a Christian. You've been an Adventist. You've been a Christian for you know, 20 some years. What do you mean you're afraid? But I still have that flesh and blood. You see, the, the battle is still taking place until we're released from this body. That fear is still going to be there. But thank God I have a savior. And he has promised to take away all fear. And he does that not just a one time act. He does that on a continual, consistent basis. As I dip into as I abide in the vine. Amen. They were afraid. They were afraid. And so they worshipped. Every man, woman, and child fell down and worshipped the image. All of them? No? No? There were three that didn't. Wherefore, Verse 8, at that time, certain Chaldeans came near and accused the Jews. You ever been accused? You ever been accused of doing something for God and you've been accused? That's awesome. That's all. It's awesome. It's awesome when you are following the Lord and you're accused. That's awesome. What's not so nice is when you're not following God and you're accused, you know, because, oh, I'm guilty. 
But you know, when you're worshiping God, when you're doing what God has asked you to do and you're accused, praise God. Praise God for that. It's a powerful testimony. God is going to do something powerful when we stand for him. And that's what these three young men were doing. They were standing for God. It was only a few years after the Daniel chapter two. So they were probably, possibly, likely these young men were still teenagers. Daniel was 15 or 16. So maybe they were about 18 or 19 years of age. When they stood alone before thousands, perhaps hundreds of thousands of people on the plain of Dura. Talk about peer pressure against teenagers. Are you listening to young people? Peer pressure. Teenagers. Standing, three of them, alone against the multitude. And the Chaldeans came and they accused them and they spake and they said to the king Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. It's the first thing you say to King Nebuchadnezzar, by the way. Oh, thou, O king, hast made a decree that every man that shall hear the sound of the music, I'm just going to skip down here, shall fall down and worship the image. And whoever doesn't fall down and worships shall be cast into the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. There are certain Jews whom thou hast set over the affairs of the province of Babylon. Don't miss that last line right there, because we know why they're accusing them now, don't we? You've set them over the affair. The ones that are set, the ones whose jobs we'd like to have. Those guys. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, have not regarded thee, nor served, not, or serve, they serve not thy gods, nor worship the golden image which thou hast set up. Now, 13 says, Nebuchadnezzar, in his rage and his fury. You know what that means, don't you? That's intense. I mean, he already commanded the wisest men of his kingdom to be killed. So we know what this means. I don't think these young men were deceived. They knew what was coming. In his rage and in his fury, commanded to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And they brought these men before the king. And Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Is it true Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? Is it true? Could it be? Now, don't listen to the words he's saying, but listen to the thoughts he's thinking. Is it true? Are there people in my kingdom who are not afraid? Could it be? See, that's why he's mad. That's why he's mad, because there are people in his kingdom who have something that he doesn't have. There are people in his kingdom who have something that he doesn't have. He is the powerful, the most wealthiest man in all the world. He controls everything. And there is something that eludes him. He is afraid for the future. And he's going to make sure that there's no one else who has not, does not have this fear. He's checking. He's making sure they're all going to worship. But there are three young men who have something that he doesn't have. They're not afraid. Is it true? Could it be true? Oh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, is it true? Now, don't misunderstand. There are people out there who are going to be very upset at you. They're going to be very upset at you. Both now, perhaps in the past, you've already experienced this, and in the end of time, because of who you are and what you stand for. And they're going to come across very angrily because of what you believe and what you stand for. Don't be fooled by that. They're looking for something 
genuine. That's what they're doing. They're looking for something. You remember, the, you remember that man that was possessed by a devil. And when Jesus came to deliver him, he said, what are you doing here? Have you come to torment me before the time? Jesus didn't pay any attention to those words. But he knew that that man was asking for help. He read beyond the words and he saw that man was reaching out for help. The Spirit of God needs to direct us, instruct us, be upon us so that we can discern the cry for help. Is it true? Was Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? Nebuchadnezzar is reaching for something, looking for something more. Is it true that you do not serve my gods nor worship the golden image which I have set up? Now, verse 15, if you are ready at the time that you hear the sound of the music and you fall down and worship, what is he doing? He's giving them a second chance. He wants to see it for himself. I got to see this. There's no way. There's no way. You, maybe you didn't hear the command. Maybe you didn't understand. Maybe the herald wasn't, wasn't quite you know, loud enough for you. Maybe you didn't quite hear what I was saying. What I said was, if you don't worship this image, you're going to die in a burning, fiery furnace. So, so let me just repeat it since you're standing right here. Make it very, very clear. Because it can't be that you're not afraid. I'm afraid. Everyone's afraid. It can't be that you're not afraid. You can't have something that I don't have. So maybe you didn't hear. If you go ahead and worship, it'll be well. It'll be good. It'll be all right. But if you worship not, verse 15, you will be cast that same hour into the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. And here it is. I love this. Who is that God? That will deliver you out of my hands. Not a smart question, Nebuchadnezzar. Not a smart question. The Bible's dumbest question. Who is that God? Who is that God? That will deliver you out of my hands. And you can just, you can just feel the, the goosebumps that are going up and down the backs of these three young men at that point because they recognize that this is all about God. It's all about God. See, they're just there to be ambassadors of this gospel that takes away all fear. And we know what removes fear. Perfect love casts out all fear, and God is love. They are instruments of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the love of God, the love that God has for the world, the love that God has for Babylon, the love that God has for Nebuchadnezzar. They are instruments, ambassadors, nothing personal taking place here. We understand, Nebuchadnezzar, you're afraid, you're scared. But we are heralds, we are witnesses of the good news that God has taken away all fear in Jesus Christ. Does God have a witness today? Can we be his witnesses today? Are there those here in whom fear has been removed by faith in Jesus? You see that? Praise God. Praise God. 
in our Sabbath school quarterly lesson this year, it was so power this morning, uh, this week, it was so powerful because when you got to the end of the lesson, there was a testimony. I don't know if you read that testimony about that man in the Middle East. It didn't have a name on it, of course, and how he was taken from his home country to another country trying to escape persecution and and uh, eventually had, had met some Christians. And what was it that impressed him about these Christians? Their life. It was their life. It was how they lived. And then he was again persecuted and had to flee to another area, another city and met up with some other Christians. But it just didn't it wasn't it just wasn't happening. There was something missing. The life just wasn't the same. They were talking it, but they weren't living it. And then he got in contact with some some more Christians again, seemingly of the same faith that he had met previously. And there it was again. There was that life and it drew him. It drew him. See, it's not enough to just have the knowledge. We stop short with the knowledge. People need to see Jesus in the life. Nebuchadnezzar needed to see Jesus in the life of these people. He needed to see it. He had this. He went to the seminar. He sat on the front row. He had this, but he needed to see it. And people, let me tell you, God is bringing trials into your lives. Death, disease, sickness, tragedy, evil, pain, loss, whatever it is. A storm is coming. Relentless in its fury. But there is the eye of the storm. You know what the eye of the storm is? It's where everything is totally calm. It's where peace abides. But you know where that eye is? It's in the middle of of the storm. It's in the middle. (laughs) And if you try to get away from that storm, if you stay on the outskirts of that storm, if you're afraid of that storm, you have to go in to the storm. You have to embrace the trials and you will find the peace. You'll find the peace. You know, Peter struggled with this for years. He struggled with this. You know, when Jesus told Peter about going to the cross, you know what Peter said? Far be it from you, Lord, you know, and of course, the Lord rebuked him severely. But finally, Peter got it. And then he began to write about, don't be, uh, don't think it's strange concerning the fiery trial. It's just to try you as, as though some strange thing happened to you. And when it was his turn to die, he said, not the way my Lord died. Upside down, please. Somehow God wants to bring us into a paradigm shift. A, an experience that finds joy in embracing trials you can say well wait a minute that doesn't sound like well only in the context of what we're seeing here in Daniel chapter 3 because when we understand that these trials are for a purpose not just pain evil and suffering because it is but an opportunity to reveal the love the peace and the goodness of God to those who are without and who are in need. Then the trial becomes meaningful, something that we can indeed see as we're told. The highest responsibility, duty, privilege that is given to God's people. And that's the way Daniel saw it. That's the way these young men saw it. They saw this as a privilege, as an opportunity. Whoa, 
that goosebumps are going up and down their, their backs right now. And who is that God that shall deliver you out of my hands? I don't know if this is the dumbest. You know, there's another question in Mark chapter 4. Mark chapter 4, the disciples are on the lake. There's, the Bible is full of these questions. And I call them dumb questions, not because I don't think any question is dumb, but because they're based on a, on a misunderstanding of who God is. Who God is. Nebuchadnezzar is not realizing who he's dealing with here. He thinks the God of these young men is the God, you know, he's taken their vessels, he's conquered their land, he's thrown them in there. And he doesn't realize that, that, that God allowed that to happen. That this is the creator God, the savior God. The disciples are out on the lake. Verse 37 of Mark chapter 4. And there arises a great storm of wind and the waves beat the ship so that it was now full of water. You ever been in that situation where you're in a storm and it's just so overwhelming. You think you're about to sink. It's over. The ship is going down. By the way, a ship in the Bible rec- uh, uh, symbolizes economy. Did you know that? Merchandise, selling, buying, the economy. It seems like our economy is going to go down. It seems like the ship is full. It seems like we are sunk economically. And we are trying our best to get the ship to the shore. We're rowing with all our might. And Jesus, it says, verse 38, Jesus was in the hinder part of the ship, in the back part of the ship, and he was asleep. It seems like... It says here is asleep on a pillow. It seems like sometimes Jesus is sleeping in the midst of our storm. Jesus is sleeping in the midst of our economic earthquake. Where is God in all of this? We're trying with all our might to save ourselves. It seems like Christ is asleep. And so they go to him and they say, wake up, wake up, master, wake up. Verse 38. Cares not. That we perish. Now, I don't know if that's the Bible's dumbest question. I mean, that's really close to Nebuchadnezzar's. You know, who is the God that will deliver you? Don't you care that we're perishing? God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him would not perish. And the disciples are saying, cares not that we perish. Not a smart question. Not a smart question. And he arose And he rebuked the wind, and he said unto the sea, Be peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. When you're with Jesus, there is peace in the midst of the storm. Amen? When you're with Jesus. You might have a lot of troubles, a lot of anxiety, a lot of pain that you're going through right now. The answer to all of it is Jesus. The answer to all of it is Jesus. Whatever happens in your life, if you will connect with Jesus, if you will go to the Lord, if you will give him your heart and your will, all your anxieties, all your troubles, all your perplexities will vanish. The answer is Christ. He will give you peace. And they said unto him, or he said unto them, verse 40, why are you so fearful? Why? Why don't you have any faith? And they, it says in verse 41, and they feared exceedingly. Seems like they were even more afraid now. (laughs) After the calm than they were before. And they said one to another, what manner of man is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? They didn't know what kind of person Christ was. They didn't know 
Christ. Do you know Christ? Do you, do you know him enough to go through the furnace? Do you know him enough to go through the furnace? Shadrach and Abednego, verse 16, answered, and they said to the king, and I can see them now, you know, they're, they're partially, I'm sure they have some butterflies in their stomach. I'm sure they're a little bit nervous. I mean, I think all men of great faith, all men of great courage still have that, that fear, that, that there's still a little bit of nervousness they have to deal with, you know? But they're excited. Oh, this is about God. This is it. This is why we're here. And Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego answered, and they said to the king, Nebuchadnezzar, we are not careful to answer you in this matter. You've made it very clear what the issue is. This is about God, so we're not even going to hesitate. Don't even give us time. We don't even want to think about it. We don't even want to contemplate because the weakness of our humanity might just give in to this great temptation to submit to you. In the face of this trial. So we're not even going to, we're not even going to hesitate. Not even going to hesitate. If it be so, verse 17, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fire furnace. And he will deliver us out of thy hand, O king. But if not, be it known unto thee, O king. Verse 18, we will not serve thy gods and we will not worship the golden image which you have set up. Hallelujah. Praise God. Praise God. Think about it. Think about it. Either way, either way, we will not worship the image. You know, when your life is on the line, that's no time to let go of your hold on Christ. Seems like that's the very time when a lot of people do let go of their hold on Christ. Seems like we can continue to worship him when everything's in prosperity. But, you know, when it's, we're going to lose our job, when it's getting really serious, when people are threatening us, when, you know, it's really coming down with a hard nitty gritty. That's time we say, well, you know, I think God won't mind if I think it'll be OK if no. When your life is on the line, that is not the time to let go of your hold on God. Amen. That is the very time when you must maintain your faith in Jesus Christ. That is the time. You need Him the most. And believe me, He's not going to let go of you. No, no. He will not let go of you. Then, verse 19, then, you think it's going to get better. You think maybe Nebuchadnezzar is going to say, wow, I'm really impressed with these guys. They really don't have any fear at all. Man, okay, you did it. You did it. No. Then Nebuchadnezzar was full of fury. I thought he was already full of fury. Oh, you haven't seen anything yet. And the form of his vision, the, the, his face was changed. You might not have been able to recognize him. His face used to be somewhat calm, kind of a tan, you know, a copper tone look. Now it was dark red purplish. And his neck had big veins that were sticking out of the sides. And his whole uh, countenance was contorted. He was so angry and he began to yell and he said that they should heat that furnace seven times hotter. These guys are dead. Why? Because they had something that he didn't have. He wanted it desperately, didn't know how to get it. He couldn't understand it. It was just beyond him. That they would, that anyone in his kingdom could have something that he wanted so desperately that he couldn't have. It was just beyond him. He was upset. 
he was mad. And he commanded the most mighty men that were in his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and cast them into the burning fiery furnace. And then, notice this, verse 21, Then these men were bound in their coats and their hosen and their hats and their garments, and they were cast in the midst of the burning fiery furnace, right in the midst of that fire, in the midst of that furnace, in the midst of that trial. In they went, and therefore, because the king's commandment, verse 22, was urgent, and the furnace was exceeding hot, the flames slew those men that took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. The mighty men, the strongest men in the kingdom died because the furnace flames were so hot. They died at the door of the furnace. And that's where you're going to die. And that's where I'm going to die too. Unless we're willing to go in to the furnace. Unless we're willing to go all the way with Jesus. Unless... We're willing to embrace the trial. Because that's where Jesus is. And the only way we can have life is if we're where Jesus is. We can't do anything of ourselves. There's no life in ourselves. But if we are where Jesus is, if we're with him, we're going to be okay. But if we stop, see, Satan wants to stop us. He wants us to stop at the door. He wants us to stop At the entrance to the trial. He wants us to stop at the outer edge of that hurricane. He doesn't want us to get to the center. He doesn't want us to get to the eye of the storm. A storm is coming relentless in its fury. And Satan's doing everything he can. Threatening and imaging how bad it's going to be. Even giving you some taste, some experiences. Because he wants to overwhelm you in your weak humanity and think that you just aren't going to make it. And he wants to stop you from connecting with Jesus. He wants to break off the connection. And so these mighty men died because they stopped at the door. Don't stop at the door, friends. Go all the way with Jesus. Go all the way into the furnace with Jesus. Amen. And these men, verse 23, these men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell down, bound in the midst of the fiery furnace. They fell down bound. But you know, when you connect with Jesus, it doesn't matter how intense the heat. It doesn't matter how bound up you are in the sins and the pleasures of this world. When you connect with Jesus, you know what happens? You're set free. You are set free. Doesn't matter what man can do to you. Doesn't matter what man has done to you. Doesn't matter what this world has done to you. Doesn't matter what your habits and your sins were or even are. When you connect with Jesus, Jesus sets you free. And sometimes it is a great trial. Sometimes it's a tremendous trial that we go through to be set free from these habits, from these addictions, from our old life, from the way we used to be, from where we are right now. All cozy and warm and comfortable in the church. Been an Adventist for three, four generations now, and everything's just fine. It's going to be hard to be set free from that. Amen. But it's possible. Some of us are very hard to reach because we are so self righteous. We are so self dependent. We've been doing this for so long. We have so many brownie buttons. We have so many Sabbaths that we've kept and so much tithe that we've paid. We've done so much good. You remember when the centurion sent his messenger to Christ, he sent him to the Pharisees actually, he said, you know, 
My servant's sick and I need you to come and heal him. And so the Jews took this message to Jesus and they said, this centurion has a servant who's sick. And he would like you to come and heal his servants. Oh, and by the way, the Pharisees added, he's worthy. Now, do you know why the centurion sent his servant to the Jews? You know why he sent the servant to the Jews? You know why he didn't go to Jesus? Why he sent the servant to the Jews? Why? Because he didn't feel like he was worthy. (laughs) But the Pharisees certainly thought he was worthy, didn't they? Was he worthy or not? No, none of us are. Never will be. And Jesus commended the faith of the centurion who believed that his servant could be healed. He commended his faith. He said, I haven't found this kind of faith in Israel. This kind of faith that believes in me, even though they feel completely unworthy of me. I haven't found this faith. We all believe we're worthy. We do. Come on. Admit it. We do. We're we're Adventists after all. We're going to church on the right day. We're doing all the things we're supposed to do. And so Jesus couldn't find this faith in Israel. Couldn't find it. This faith that says, you know, I'm not worthy, but I believe that you can do it. I believe in you. I believe. And this is the experience of these three young men. Nebuchadnezzar, verse 24, the king was astonished. He rose up in haste and he spake and he said to his counselors, didn't we cast three men bound in the midst of the fiery furnace, in the midst of the fire? And they answered and they said, true, O king, whatever you say. I mean, they're looking in the furnace just like the king is and they see four men in there and they're all loose, right? But they're not going to say anything different from what the king says because they are scared. It's called being politically correct. And that is going to be one of the most difficult challenges that we're going to face when it comes to giving the message of Revelation chapter 14. The three angels messages. We are going to face this idea of being politically correct. And yet needing to identify the sins of Babylon and the mark of the beast. Lord, please help us. Yes, sir. It's true. They're yes men. And he answered and said, well, I see four men. Verse 25, loose and walking in this, the fire. And they have no hurt. And the form of the fourth is like the son of of God. And before all these yes men can say, yes, king, you're right. The king has lifted up off his throne. He's going right over there to the furnace. He's looking in. He's just left those guys behind. He's looking in there and he's saying, I see it. I see it. This is what Nebuchadnezzar has been looking for. He had this, but now he sees it. He sees people who live what he was taught. Who have it in their experience. They're free in the midst of the fire. They're free in the midst of the furnace. Are you free in your trials? In the fiery furnace that is consuming you, are you free? Is Jesus with you? Do you know him? 
Do other people see Jesus with you in your trial? Do other people see you free with Jesus in your trials? You know, trials hit us every day, don't they? Every day, wherever we go. In work, play, in the home, on the road, wherever we are. It's just one trial after another. And sometimes I want to say, Lord, I don't know if I can handle any more of these trials, Lord. I don't know if I can handle any more. It's at that point I plead for the Lord. Lord, hook me up with Jesus. Make sure that I'm abiding in Christ. Make sure people see someone who is free. Someone who is abiding in Christ. Help me to be a witness for you. Forgive me where I failed to be that witness. And help me. Help me, please. Nebuchadnezzar saw it. He saw it. And he came near the mouth, verse 26, of the burning fiery furnace. And he spake unto Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And he said, servants of the Most High God, come forth and and come hither. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came forth in the midst of the fire. And the princes and the governors and the captains and the king's counselors being gathered together saw these men. Amen. They saw them. Upon whose bodies the fire had no power. Nor was a hair of their head singed. I'm still losing my hair. I know when I'm stressed out. My hair, my hair starts dropping. Whew. They hadn't lost one little particle of hair. Can you imagine the kind of peace they had through this? This is what God wants for us. He wants to satisfy us abundantly. We come to Jesus and we say, oh, life's going to be good. Jesus, forgive me. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Things are so good. And then trials come. We say, whoa, did I get in the wrong religion? Am I in the wrong church? What's going on here? We think it's strange. And we see these other churches. We see these other preachers preaching this prosperity gospel. You know, if you become a Christian, give you ours a lot. Everything's going to be okay. All your bills are going to be paid. You're going to be a wealthy man. And God's going to bless you. He's going to heal you of all your diseases. Everything's going to be just great. Tell that to Elisha. Tell that to Lazarus. Tell that to Jesus. God has not called us. To live a life of ease and prosperity. God has called us to the eye of the storm. To the eye of the storm. Jesus said it this way. Peace I leave. My peace I give. Not as the world give, give I unto you. Let not your heart be troubled. Neither let it be afraid. There's going to be a lot of trouble all around us, friends. And it's going to be intense. But God has promised us peace on the inside. Right here. Peace. When the economy started going down, when you started losing, and people around you started losing, when jobs started disappearing, when money started disappearing, how did it affect you? God is reminding us of where our peace really lies. It's not in our bank accounts. It's not in our material possessions. It's not in this world. It's not in our jobs. It's not in our careers. So it's time to reprioritize. If those things are causing you concern, it's time to reprioritize your life and recognize it's a wake-up call. We've still got time. Praise God. Probation hasn't closed yet. It's a wake-up call to remind us that one day soon, 
Babylon's going to fall. It's all going to go down. Everything earthly is going to go down. The Sabbath is a reminder to let go of those things that are earthly. Because they are transitory at best. It's not going to last. It's not going to take us through. All of these things need to be secondary in our life. Secondary to the one great purpose that God has called us to. To be his witnesses, his ambassadors, to be heralds of the everlasting gospel. The good news of Jesus Christ. The gospel is going to be carried to all the world as a witness. That word in Matthew 24 in the original Greek means martyr. Martyr. As a witness. God wants us to be martyrs. The first death that we are to die is a death to self. And from that point on, everything's downhill. It's easy. Self is the greatest thing we have to manage. Martin Luther said it this way once. He said, I fear self more than I fear the Pope and all his bishops. Self. How do we overcome self? Ellen White has this powerful statement. I want to share it with you. It's in the Desire of Ages 4. 139 and 440. And it says, I'm paraphrasing, but mostly quoting. When we see Jesus, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. When we see him traveling from city to city until his mission was accomplished. When we see him in Gethsemane sweating great drops of blood and on the cross dying in agony. When we see this, self will no longer clamor to be recognized. We'll be ashamed of our coldness, of our lethargy, of our self-seeking. And we will be willing to be anything or nothing. Amen. To be anything, something, somebody, or nothing. So that we can do heart service for the Master. Amen. You know, it's a wonderful experience to be nothing for God. And still be happy. It, it's, there's nothing like that. There's nothing like that experience. To be nothing for God. Because that's what he wants you to be. Nothing. And still be happy. I remember when I first. It's a long story and I don't know how to make it short. But some of you know that we were out of the church for oh, quite a few years. In the beginning of our Light Bearers ministry. We were an independent ministry. And I remember when I first started coming back to church. God had directed us to begin to attend church. To reconcile with our church family. And I started attending church. And you know we were, we were gung-ho, zealous. Bible, spirit of prophecy. Preaching, teaching, baptizing, tithe receiving, independent ministry. And we're going to this little church. And we're going to the Sabbath school. And everyone in that church is thinking they've come to take over the church. And the Lord impressed me. You need to be nothing, James. And, you know, I love to 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 share, to teach, to preach, to share. And it was it took everything I had to say nothing in that Sabbath school. But that's what the Lord impressed me to do. Don't say anything. Just be quiet. And week after week after week. And things were brought up and I want to just say what. Uh, but the Lord impressed me. Don't say anything. Just say nothing. And there was a peace there. And after a couple of months of this, one of the Sabbath school members, church members came to me and they said, I really appreciated the fact that you've come to this church and come to our Sabbath school and said nothing. That's really helped me a lot. <laughs> Seriously. And I said, praise God. <laughs> praise God. God wanted me to do 
Nothing. To be nothing for Him. There is no greater joy than serving God, even if it means doing nothing. Just being what He wants you to be. Because even in doing nothing for God, you're doing something. Amen? And so we find here these three young men being a testimony of the gospel. Matthew 24, 14. This is going to bring the end. We know that. All the signs that we see being fulfilled are insignificant when compared with this one sign. You can take all of the signs in Matthew 24, the wars and rumors of wars and earthquakes and natural disasters and pestilence and famine. You can take all those signs of false Christ, all of it, and you can put it on one side of the scale, and then you can put this one sign on the other side that will tip the scale. All these other signs will be fulfilled. They'll continue to be fulfilled. But unless this one sign is fulfilled, the end will not come. The gospel is to be preached to all the world. Is that the sign? Part of it. The gospel is to be preached to all the world as a witness. See, Daniel, too, the gospel was preached to Nebuchadnezzar. He got it. He saw it. All these kingdoms, Christ. One nation after another, Jesus. Who's going to bring down the world? Who's going to bring down all these kingdoms? Who can bring down all the idols in your life? The rock. See, he got the message. But not until he saw it did it begin to impact him. The book of Daniel instructs us in practical Christian experience. It teaches us how to come to Christ. And what we have in Daniel 3 is the witness that led Nebuchadnezzar one step further than the intellectual knowledge. And what we're going to find this afternoon is the very next step, the final step that Nebuchadnezzar takes. Daniel chapter 4. But for now, he's got the witness. And Nebuchadnezzar is impacted. It says in verse 28, he blessed the God. Of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. What was the question he was asking earlier? Who is that God? Who is that God? And now what is he doing? He's blessing the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Who has sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him. Oh, Nebuchadnezzar saying, oh, I would love to have a God like that. I would love to have a God like that, a God who can take away all my fear, a God who can take away all my anxiety, a God who can deliver me from the fiery trials, a God who can protect me and save me. I long to have a God like that. The world is longing for this God, this Savior, this gospel. Take a hold of it yourself. Possess Jesus Christ as your personal Savior. And then, friends... As you do that, you will not be able to help, but share him with others. It will be your natural response to share what you've been given. You know, if you if you get filled up with all the information about the latest sales, you're going to share it with your friends. Hey, there's a sale going on at Macy's. If you get filled up with all the information about computers, you're going to share anything you hear that's good. You're going to fill yourself up and then you're going to share it with others. Fill yourself up with the good news of Jesus Christ and it will be proclaimed to others. It will be proclaimed to others. Amen. Amen. Let's pray together this morning.
Father in heaven, we just want to thank you for your word. We want to thank you so much for showing us in Daniel chapter 3 that you are God who can deliver and has delivered us from the power of death and fear. Thank you for Jesus Christ. Thank you for the grace that has appeared unto all men. And now fill us with this grace, with this love, with this gospel to overflowing, Father, so that we can go from this place to share, to be your witnesses, to testify to the world that you so love. We pray in the name of Jesus Christ and let everyone say, Amen. Amen.